Well, last week, Jesus, or James, excuse me, was teaching us that favoritism is wrong. And he was talking about favoritism in the church. And he said it's wrong to favor a rich person over a poor person. And it's very obvious from the scriptures that God loves the poor. Jesus himself was poor. This week, uh, he's not going to tell us to ignore the rich. He's not going to be like, well, forget those rich people. That would be against God as well, because God in heaven, he's rich. So God, when he was on earth and the person of Jesus Christ was poor, but now he's in, he's in heaven and he is rich. Followers of Jesus, we were told last week, are not to show uh, partiality. Some versions say favoritism, probably a little easier uh, word for us. And in Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus taught us that we are to help our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? People who are in need and care of care and attention. And that's people who are rich and that's people who are poor. People we're all going to need at some point in time in our lives care and attention. Now, let's be honest about it. Some people just don't want to accept your care and your attention. And they don't even, some of them don't want to even accept the fact that they even need any kind of help. So what's my advice for that? Uh, pray and offer your help. Offer your help and pray. And if they say no, that's the best you can do. Uh, but don't give up too easily. This week, James uh, is teaching continues that favoritism is incompatible with the Christian life. So if you want to call yourself a Christian and you are partial to certain people or you're playing favorites, we're not talking about some people you're more closely friends with and other people you're not, but if you're playing favorites based upon appearances or based upon other factors, that that is incompatible with uh, the Christian faith because it violates what he's going to call in verse 8, the royal law. And this law, he says, is according to the Scripture. Uh, usually when they say that in the New Testament, it means they're referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. And it means that it is according to divine law. Now, some of you might already you hear that term divine law, and you might be pushing back already. And you're saying, Pastor Jim, we barely even got going. And you're, <laughs> you're already talking about law. We, we are under grace. And this actually fits very well in with our Sunday studies, what we studied last Sunday and what we're continuing to look at this week in the life of Abraham in our series, Venturing into the Unknown. We read a key Old Testament verse quoted numerous times in the uh, New Testament, uh, three times, and we'll actually see it in James's uh, writing. Uh, Genesis 15, 6, and it's uh, talking about Abraham, or Abram at the time his name was, and he believed in the Lord... And he accounted it to him for righteousness. And we said that most versions don't have the term in. It says, and he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So he believed the Lord. Basically, we said the wording was similar to him saying to the Lord. The Lord said, I'm going to bless you with kids even though you're an old man and your wife is very old. And, and Abraham went, amen, Lord, amen. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. And God you know, we said God pulled the angels over and said, look, that's what a righteous man looks like. That's how you achieve righteousness in my eyes, is you believe me. You trust me. Now, we said that this 
believing in God, that it was accounted to him for righteousness, was before the law. We've said this many times before, that, that, that God accounted him as righteous long before Moses and the law, four or five hundred years before the law. And, and God uses the events of the Exodus, which we associate with the law, to actually teach us that grace came before the law. It's very, very important that we understand that. Extremely important that we understand that. And, and so today, tonight, the, our message is entitled, Finding Freedom in Obeying God. Finding Freedom in Obeying God. Remember, James uh, is an early letter. He's preaching the gospel uh, out of the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus. The other apostles hadn't really been writing at this point in time. And, and when we talk about t- preaching the gospel out of the Old Testament and uh, you know, the teachings of Jesus, let's just talk for a second about preaching the gospel out of the Old Testament. We are on Sundays covering the Old Testament. Some of you might be thinking, well, when you get back to the New Testament, I'll check it out. Many of you have written in, how is it that, that it consistently ends us with Jesus. And I'll get to that in a second. And all pastors should be preaching the gospel out of the Old Testament. Why? Because that teaches people a proper view of the Old Testament instead of the discounted behavioral model that a lot of Christians seem to have. For many, if you don't preach the gospel out of the Old Testament, uh, it produces a view that goes kind of something like this. Uh, You know, try to obey. obey. I get it, God will help you, but really what it says in the Old Testament doesn't really matter. That is 100% wrong. 100% wrong. You say, I need a little bit more than your opinion, Pastor Jim. Okay, let's see what Jesus says. John 5.39, Jesus says, to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures. What does he mean by that? Well, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so he's got to be talking about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So Jesus is saying, look very carefully, and you will find me in the Old Testament, We'll actually do that this Sunday. You can see it. We'll actually do a demonstration of that this Sunday. And another version says, Jesus says, this will, they testify of me. Another version says, bear witness of me. So how important does Jesus think the Old Testament is? He thinks it's hugely important. He says, it's all about me. Testify of me. Bears witness about me. Now, there's some text that you'd have to really kind of shoehorn Jesus in. But, but overall... You know, the road to Emmaus, he took the disciples and he, and he started, you know, uh, in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to all the ones that testified of him. And by the way, what we call the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. You don't want to read Jesus' Bible? Very important. So let's, let's think this grace law thing through a little bit. In the book of Exodus, because it's really important to understand this if we're going to understand James. In the book of Exodus, the people of God, 
Again, we're going to learn about that this Sunday. The people of God were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God freed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He did for them what they could not do for themselves. He freed them from slavery. Eventually, they end up, they're walking through the wilderness, and they end up at Mount Sinai, where the Lord gives them the law after they had been set free. We understand that. Set free, Mount Sinai, law. Abraham, four or five hundred years earlier, grace before law. People of God set free, then comes the law after they're set free. So the same God who saved them, the same God who freed them, now gives them the law. So once again, freedom or grace came before the law. Now, I realize that we live in an age of entitlement. And we would be, I think, foolish to think it hasn't bled into our own type of Christian thinking. So often we will say that we believe God's word, but yet we'll let our opinions and our emotions or what we desire to actually trump. There's that word again. Trump God's word. And so we have to be very careful of that. And so not living in obedience to the word of the Lord is not living in light of the grace of God. God wanted them to obey him. God wanted them to do what pleases him out of their hearts of gratitude and love for him and thankfulness for what he had done for them. Now, we fast forward to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, same way Abraham was. By grace, nothing we did to deserve it, nothing Abraham did to deserve it, through faith by believing God, by trusting God, trusting his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not obey to get God's favor, but we obey because we already have God's favor. So therefore, obeying what God tells us to do is not a beat-on-you obedience. It is a responsive obedience. We look at that cross, and we're looking at Jesus, and if we're honest, we're saying this, that should have been me, but it was him. And then... Our hearts, our affections are drawn to him and living a life that pleases him becomes the logical thing to do. So Old Testament obedience, the law after they had been freed, easily transfers into the New Testament. Easily transfers into the New Testament. Now, the dietary things are not there, but because of the cross, the moral and ethical areas are still widely taught in the New Testament. So now with that as a background, we come into James chapter 2, verse 8. 
He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's he doing? He's quoting Moses, Leviticus 19, 18. You do well, or you are, the idea is you are doing well. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. He could be saying, you're the real deal. If that's the way you live your life, again, to the best of your ability with God's help, not perfectly, we'll talk about that in a bit, you're the real deal. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you commit sin. The verb tense is actually you are continually committing sin if this is the way you live your life and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the law convicts you. Think, don't think of your heart being convicted. Think of being convicted in a courtroom as a transgressor, as a lawbreaker. Could be saying you're actually, the law is actually going to show you that you're a phony. The people that are are doing it well, loving their neighbor as themselves, they're the real deal. But if you don't really care, if it's all about you and how you're going to look and how you're going to look good or what's in it for you, you're really a phony. So James begins with this interesting term in verse verse 8, the royal law. Now there's a lot of debate over what that means. I try to be as simple as I can with such things, not just in my communication with you guys, but in my own thinking. Okay, royal law. To me, I think, oh, that's the king's law. (laughs) It's the royal law, or it's the law of the kingdom. It's the law of the kingdom of God. So let's just call it, it's the king's or the kingdom law. It's what God expects from his people, and what God expected, um, what we're reading in James in a lot of ways, is what God expected from the people of God in the Old Testament, expanded by Jesus in the New Testament. Remember, he's basically going off the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures, and then there's a 400 time in between, the end of the writing of the Old Testament until Jesus comes, and then Jesus doesn't just teach the Old Testament Scriptures, he's expanded. Expanding on it. He makes it not just a matter of, of the outer, but it's, it's also on the inside, how, we, how our hearts are. So, as followers of Jesus, not only does this law belong to King Jesus, this is very, very important, this royal law, but we must also realize that in addition to it belonging to Jesus, the goal of the royal law is actually to bring us to Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus' law wants to bring you to him. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus' law wants to lead you to King Jesus. And, And Jesus was very open and honest, very open and honest, that belonging to the kingdom of God included loving God and other people as well. 1 John 4, he says, listen, man, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. You don't love God. You think you do, but you don't. Listen to what Jesus says. The religious leaders are testing Jesus in Matthew 22. They asked Jesus what was the great commandment in the law or the Old Testament law. Verse 37, 
Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The first, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, listen, I know you got the whole Hebrew scripture, you have the whole Old Testament scripture, but, but I want to just hang it on two things that basically summarize what we're getting at in the Old Testament scriptures that is the goal of following and loving God, that you would love him and that you would love people, that your love for God would be expressed in your love for people. Now, the scripture that I just read is one of those scriptures that I think that if you've been around the church for a long time, that you are so used to it, it's lost its impact on you. It hasn't really made much of an impact on you at all, but this is, is made a clear ob obligation of the people of God to love God and to love people. This makes favoritism a much larger sin than we think it is because we are to show favor to everyone, to everyone. I'm going to tell you something. This is so hard for me. This is so hard for me on Sunday mornings. Most of you who know me know that I am an extrovert. So I, I like to talk to people. I have a, an illness that makes me have to sit down all the time, but I used to be running around the church all the time. They're like, you should have seen that guy before. He's a crazy guy, chasing people out in the parking lot, crazy guy. And, and so I, I want to talk to Everybody I can, but people have places to go. And, and I, I can only talk to people for a couple seconds, and I feel like I'm not having a great conversation with them. And other people are walking by, and I'm like, I don't want you to think this is favoritism. This is not favoritism. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. So if you haven't talked to me in a while, man, you know, drop me a line, please, please. So, so it, it's, not that, it's not that easy because we're to show favor to everyone. You see, here's the thing, and now I'm not talking about church people anymore, okay? Love overlooks a lot of things, including showing love to people who have qualities you may not like. Now, but let's strike the balance. This does not eliminate... When we see in, in the other epistles, the other letters of the apostles, this does not eliminate the need for telling someone they're doing something wrong. It, doesn't, it does not eliminate the need for church discipline when the Bible calls for it. Now, it is common, and now I'm just talking like an old man who's been around the church for a long time. It is common for people around, around church world uh, to run around church world and say, we just need to love people. We just need to forgive people. Now, I understand that. I, I understand that. But I'm just going to make a general observation. It's not true in every case that those people that I find that are running around saying we just need to love people, we just need to forgive people, 
I find them to be generally the least loving and forgiving people out of anyone when things don't go their way. Oh, they're fine when things are going their way. But when things are not going their way, love and forgiveness seems to take a vacation. Why is that? I think it's because of a lack of understanding of the Word of God, a lack of understanding of the royal law, of the law of King Jesus, that tells us. See, the law of God tells us how to love. It's just not like, oh, I love you, bro, I love you. Whatever, man, what? It tells us how to love and how to love rightly according to God's way and fulfill the law. Now, love is a big part of God's law. Love is a big part of the royal law. Let's just think of the law of Jesus from, from the time he you know, started his preaching ministry and then all throughout all the way to the end of the New Testament. Love is a big part of the royal law, but it doesn't override it. It's part of it, but it doesn't override it. Law makes love real because it tells us and teaches us once again what love really is. Some of us have heard people say this to us. I love you, but I don't really like you. Now, um, <laughs> how do you answer that? My response is, is something like, oh, okay, thanks for sharing, you know. Um, inside, I'm, I'm saying, you know, let's just save it, man. Just save it. Those are empty words. Actually, I'm lying to you. While I'm smiling on the outside, inside, I'm like, would you please stick that in your ear? <laughs> because that is stupid. I, I love you, but I don't like you. You see, but people will say that because that's how they excuse they're lying to you, they're lying about you, their selfishness, they're not respecting you, they're, they're, they're not caring for you. You see, in the Word of God, love is defined by caring, not emotions. It, it, in fact, he says we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. What is he saying? You are to care for others in the same way you care for yourself. Now, a lot of people will say, well, when he says love your neighbor as yourself, he's promoting self-love. You got to love yourself first. I don't think that he is. I think he's actually assuming that you love yourself. And he's saying you got to love and care for others in the same way that you love and care for yourself. Now, maybe you say, well, I know people who say they hate themselves. Have you spent much time with people who say they hate themselves? I've spent a decent amount of time with people who say they hate themselves. You know what their biggest problem is? They're obsessed with themselves. <laughs> they are all they care about. And, and so they, 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 they say they hate themselves. They, that often leads them to speak poorly of themselves. And it excuses them from, from loving others. I don't have to love others because I hate myself. Why should, I hate, why should I love other people? And it also is a good way of getting people to feel sorry for you. I remember a long, long time ago, uh, I was part of a youth group, and I, I met this girl, and, and 
I said to somebody, what's she doing over there? She didn't talk to anybody. And they said, oh, don't go near her. She's trouble. And uh, I walked up to her and I, I said, how you doing? She says, go away. I said, oh, this is off to, this is off to a good start. I said, um, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm, I'm just going to be here for the next hour and a half of this night. And so I'm just going to be here. And, uh, and she's like, well, you know, don't be a creeper. Don't stalk me. And uh, she goes, you just, just go away. And I said, well, you seem like you're sitting over here by yourself. And she said, I hate myself. I said, oh, that's sad. She goes, yes, it is sad. I hate myself. And I said, well, what's, what do you hate about yourself? And she goes, I'm ugly. And I said, well, if you hate yourself and you're ugly, shouldn't you be glad that you're ugly because you hate yourself? And she burst out laughing. And she goes, I just say that to get people away from me. I don't want to be here. Right? And so you know, sometimes people, they just, they just say things. And, and so they're, you know, they're just trying to get through life, I guess. In verse 9, again, he puts it all together and he says that partiality or favoritism is a sin. Why? Because it fails to love your neighbor. Favoritism is very consistent with the ways of the world, but it's very inconsistent with the ways of the kingdom of God. Favoritism violates the law of love, which is at the heart and center of the royal law. And he says violators will be convicted or they will be guilty before God. And sometimes I think we don't really understand or think about how little we care about other people. You know, we have a lot of these protests that are going on in our country these days, and so it's led me to have a lot of conversations with people. Now, when it comes to the inner city, I grew up in the suburbs, I live in the suburbs, but I worked many, many summers in the city, and in New York City, and then I, I drove a truck for almost eight years in the five boroughs, and then I started a trucking company, and most of the guys that I hired in New Jersey were, I was in, if you're not from around here, when we say the city, we mean New York. And so, um, but, but most of the guys that I hired were from you know, Newark and, and Hillside and Irvington, which are smaller suburbs, or not really suburbs, but areas outside of Newark or, or Jersey City. Um, and so those were primarily the Elizabeth, those were primarily the guys that, that, that came to work for me. And I learned a lot from them. And I realized in these past year, past few months, especially in talking to a lot of people, that most of us who live in the suburbs I don't want to use the word ignorant, but I want to say that we're really clueless about the violence that such people, that so many people live with. I mean, these guys that I worked with were hardworking men. How he said, you guys work like bulls, man. I love it. And they were hardworking men, but their communities were overtaken by hoodlums. And most of them were young teenagers with guns. And so we can be very insensitive to the violence in the cities. We can be very insensitive because many of us who live in the suburbs 
are really well-educated compared to the people who live in a lot of the poorest sections of this country. I mean, really well-educated. And, and so we, I think a lot of times we, we take that for granted. We, we take for granted the ability we have to even apply for jobs that other people can't even apply for because they lack the educational ability sometimes to even fill out the application. And so I'm only saying that that sometimes it's easy for us in our bubbles to realize that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves as much as we might think that we do. And, and here, the Lord is teaching us that discrimination of any sort, he says, you commit sin. And, and, and the terminology, the way it is, implies that you're actually making a willful choice about it. Now, I'm not saying if you don't know about it, but I mean, I'm saying like if you have certain thoughts when you see certain people maybe walk in front of you in the street or, or you know, you watch certain people on TV or something like that and you you have, you know, well, those people or something like that. Now, I understand that sometimes you're just saying it's a group of people, but if you're making a classification that's discriminatory or something like that, that's a willful choice. And the consequences are not good. He says you will be convicted by God because your failure to love is a willful failure of the royal law. Now, right now you're probably going like, well, why is James so direct? I don't mean James May, I mean James the Bible writer, <laughs> or maybe both. Because I think that they think, like we think sometimes, that partiality, that favoritism, that discrimination is not a big deal. And James says, you're going to be convicted by God of it. Why? Because he wants to shake us to the core. He wants us to know, listen, God knows what you're thinking. God knows what you're saying. God knows what's going on in your, in your heart and in your mind. And so he wants to kind of shake us out of what we're doing. It's kind of a shock value. It's not a little sin. He says in verse 8, if you're not doing it, you do well. He says in verse 9, if you commit sin, if you do it, you commit sin. And what is he saying? It's a choice. It's clearly a choice that we make. Now, verse 10 is very important, uh, not just for favoritism, but for good biblical theology. This is one that, that we must understand. He says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble, some of your versions say fails, in one point is guilty of all. So he says if you get one thing wrong, you failed the whole thing. For he said, do not commit adultery. James is saying, the Lord said, do not commit adultery. Also, do not murder. So he picks two very serious sins. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, James is saying this. You think favoritism is no big deal. 
But he says, if you fail at one point of the law, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. That's favoritism. When you're doing favoritism, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you fail at one point in the law, you have failed the whole thing. I don't want to go too fast on that. He says it right here, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. If you fail one thing, God is that holy. You failed the whole thing. Now that is not how many people think. Not, that is not how many people think God thinks. They're like, well, God knows, God knows my heart. People always tell me, God knows my heart. I go, yes, that's the problem. <laughs> Don't you understand that? He knows our hearts. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. That's the problem. Most people think, well, you know, he, he knows I'm just trying my best. You know, I'm just hacking it out. I'm better than that guy. Look at, look at him. Right? So that's the way a lot of people think. But the reality is, he, James is teaching us here, the Scripture teaches us, that it's not like, well, 65 is a passing grade or 70, or 75, or whatever it is, or, or a certain percentage of people, you know, a third of the people, they get in because they got the passing grade, whatever, whatever their grade is. No, it's a completely pass or fail test. You either get 100, or you get an F. That's why Jesus needed to come. That's why Jesus needed to come. Now, obviously, nobody except Jesus could perfectly keep the law. That's why we often say here that Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. Part of the Lord's point here is this. You say, but James is writing, it's the word of the Lord. We can't pick and choose what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey. We can't do that. Theologians describe the law as an indivisible unity, that it all pieces together. And if you pull one piece out of the puzzle, one even tiny piece, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Now, lukewarm Christians, remember what Jesus said about them? He said, I vomit them out of my mouth. He says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold, but you're lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. For them, they want the word of God that's a la carte cafeteria style. I'll do that, but I won't do that. I'll do that, but I won't do that. You say be more specific. I'll volunteer my time, but I won't crack my checkbook. I'll crack my checkbook, but I won't give anybody of my time. I'll forgive her, but I won't forgive him. You see, that's a la carte Christianity. Again, Jesus, vomit you out of my mouth. And this is one thing. Again, if you're, you're, you're not a Christian, you're watching us tonight, I appreciate you because you can't stand phony Christianity. And you want to know something? Jesus is full on with you, man. He says, I vomit those kind of people out of my mouth. Man, ah, it's terrible. I can't. This stuff makes me sick. So you got something, in, you got something with Jesus in common with Jesus. If we view the law as just individual commandments, that just lessens our own personal guilt, but not before God. We just are like, well, I'm good here, but I'm not so good there. 
But from God's point of view, to break one point of the law is to get a failing grade, which is exactly why we need a Savior, because we need the righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Christ to clothe us. Now, you, you still might be pushing back on me. Let's, let's take this a little further. To say that one part of the law doesn't really apply to me is to say part of what God desires doesn't matter to me. To say favoritism is no big deal is to say, God, I choose who I play favorites with, not you. Failing to love our neighbors in the, in the way God requires is to break God's law. Sadly, we often do it without the facts about people. We just jump to conclusions about people without knowing the facts about our neighbor. And so the Lord says to keep the law selectively is to break it. It is a rejection of God himself because it is all of the law is from the divine lawmaker. Essentially, when we pick and choose, we have become our own God. Now we're the ones that decide what's true. You see, the Lord Jesus wants us to submit to him totally or not at all. As the old expression goes, Jesus is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. So James uses the example of somebody who murders somebody and somebody who commits adultery. And it's supposed to be outrageous. It's like a guy comes up before God and he goes, um, Hey God, how are you? I'm here. I realize I murdered someone. I realize I did that. But I never committed adultery. I'm a good person. And it was supposed to be like, this guy's, this guy's crazy. But let's put some maybe more different ways that we think about it. You're driving down the road and, and you stop at a, a light and all of a sudden, boom, some guy wells you from behind. And your car is badly damaged. So you pull it over to the side, and the guy gets out, and he says, we're not going to call the cops. We're not going to call insurance. Your car still drives fine. I'm not guilty of anything. Now, he's guilty. You're going to get his insurance card. You're, you're going you're to you're you know, get your car fixed. Or you go out, and you have too many drinks, and you get a DWI. Do you, do you stand before the judge and, and you, you're like, really bad, man. You, you got a DWI. Maybe you hit somebody or you, you did some public damage or something like that. And the judge says to you, do you have anything to say to yourself? And you go, I've never cheated on my taxes. I'm a good person. You should declare me innocent. No, it's not, it's not going to work. I'm being silly, but James' examples of murder and adultery is pointing out the fact that 
that we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Verse 12, he says, so speak and so do, or so speak and so act. The idea is a continuing action of speaking and doing as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Some versions say the law of freedom or the law that gives freedom. So God says that we will be judged by God's standard, not man's ever-changing standards. I mean, they're constantly changing. Now, in verse 10 and 11, you might have said that that section was a little hard. And, And you could make the case that that's closer to Old Testament law. And now here in verse 12, this judged by the law of liberty might be more the law in light of Christ. I can't say whether you'd be right or wrong, but I I would respect that opinion. Why would you say that, Pastor Jim? Because verse 10 talks about our failure, while verse 12 talks about our freedom. Because of the cross and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit into the heart and lives of all those who put their trust in Jesus, we are free. So he says, when you're free, we should be constantly speaking and acting in step with the word of the Lord. It reminds us of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was clear that if if you think that you can live perfectly, live out perfectly the Old Testament law, you you will fail. But Jesus Christ brings freedom. So I think James is actually pulling us back into chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, but he's warning us here in verse 12 that we'll be judged by the law of liberty. He's warning us about future judgment, what theologians call eschatological judgment. Now, some people, they'll say like, oh, now you're way off. Pastor Jim, you're way off. When we trust Jesus, you've told us a thousand times, when we trust Jesus, we are forgiven our sins, we are adopted into the family of God, we have eternal life in heaven, Jesus took the judgment for our sins on the cross. What are you talking about now? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've never put your trust in Jesus, then you will undergo the judgment for your sins instead of having Jesus undergo the judgment for your sins. And you won't make it. You will fail no matter how good a person you think you might be. You're going to fail. But what he's talking about here is not the heaven or hell judgment. Remember, the law is pass or fail. You don't trust Jesus, you fail. But you pass if you've put your trust in Jesus. What is he talking about? This is the judgment of believers before Christ. The Apostle Paul writing this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, For we must all appear before the judgment of Christ, that each one may receive or get what is due for the things he has done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, whether good or worthless. Now, what's going on here? Well, he's talking about 
believers appearing before God, and it would seem that he's going to hand out rewards. This is the amazing thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this, if you don't want Jesus after I say this, I don't, know, I don't know. God offers you this deal. I will take your sins and I will punish my son for them on the cross. And I will reward you for the good things you do for me and in my name. <laughs> Some of you are like, what's the catch? <laughs> that is too good a deal to say no to. I know. I know. I would also say one thing that James is doing. I mean, he's, again, he's gonna, there's that judgment. We're going to meet God, and he's going to know, you know, do, talk about what we did for him. But I would also say James is preparing us for next week's highly controversial and much debated section. I hope you will join us. We love those sections. We love those really, really difficult sections. And what James is going to argue next week, Lord willing, is that being a doer of the word is necessary in God's verdict towards you and me. We just read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I hate to say this, but much of the American church now seems to have this wrong. Being saved by grace does not free us from obeying God. It doesn't end our obligations to obey God. No, being saved by grace, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God. Acts 5.32, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter said this, And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You could say that Peter, part of what Peter is getting at is that obeying God releases the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, you might say, well, why do you say so, so much of the American church has this wrong? Well, we said this before in previous studies in James that many Christians see obedience as restrictive. They see it as restrictive. Yet, much of what we call freedom enslaves us. And we find that we are easily addicted to things that are not freeing at all. And yet people would say that we're free. See, God wants us to stop denying our sin. He wants us to stop excusing our sin. He wants us to stop giving in to our shame. He wants us to be free. Like we said about the Exodus, they were slaves and then they were set free. And catch this. And the law was given to them to help keep them free. They were slaves who were set free and the law was given to them to help them stay free and to show them 
their need for God. Yet today, and I don't want to be some grumpy old man. Well, you're like, you are a grumpy old man. Okay, I don't want to be some grumpy old man. We could say that each generation rebels against God's freedom, saying, I got to be myself, man. I mean, I got, you know, God made me this way. I got to be myself. Yet the Word of God says that we are created in the image of God. So, if that's our identity, that we're created in the image of God, it would only be logical to realize that to go against that identity is what creates bondage. It's what creates a lack of freedom in our lives. But to obey the word of the Lord, and it doesn't take place overnight. It's, it's, it's a long, gritty process brings us, though, when we obey the word of the Lord, it brings us to the freedom that is found in experiencing the image of God. Let me say that again, that that when we obey the Lord, it brings us the freedom that is found in experiencing the image of God or the way we were made. Yet, I talk to pastors and they tell me that if I tell the people that they have to obey, they won't come back. Or, or other people say, I, I, won't t- I can't tell my friends this. I'll be cut off. Oh, excuse me. I'll be canceled. <laughs> can't, I can't do that. You see, it doesn't matter how much Bible we know. right? We have to love people enough to tell them the way to heaven. And the way to true freedom on earth. But here's the problem I think a lot of people have. When we talk about freedom in obeying God, for a lot of people, it's only theology. Or it's only wishful thinking. They just haven't really experienced that freedom. You know, I I used to use a lot of drugs and and I remember one time, um, somebody said to me one time, I said, you know, if, if I were to put some drugs in front of you, I know you, you couldn't say no. And I said, I can. And he said, well, your, free, your, your religion is too restrictive for me. And I said, actually, it's the most freeing thing ever. He said, how so? And I said, before I could only say Yes. Now I can say yes or no. That's true freedom. That's true freedom. Verse 13 reminds us that the poor man was judged or discriminated against by the church. And he says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So both the Old Testament law and Jesus' teaching call for the people of God to be merciful. But that's not just a feeling that's actively reaching out. It doesn't matter how much Bible we know, discrimination, racism, judgmentalism is the opposite of what God wants for us. Once again, James is very direct. 
if a Christian or a so-called Christian loves as though ethical matters don't matter, that's a very bad sign. They're in a very, very bad place. And if we refuse to show mercy to others, we demonstrate that we have not truly received God's mercy ourselves. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Some versions say they shall receive mercy or they shall be shown mercy. It's a great danger that I've seen both in churches over the years and in individuals. A lack of mercy is a self-imposed prison. It really is. It's a terrible place to live. If it's not dealt with, it will become a lifestyle and shape the way we view people who were created in the image of God. In Jesus' famous parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus taught about a man who was forgiven a great debt. He was shown mercy, but he would not show mercy to others who owed a lot less. Matthew 18, 32 through 35. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had compassion on you? Mercy is at the heart of the gospel. Verse 34. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And then Jesus gives us the conclusion. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. At this point you might be saying, Pastor Jim, James is killing us here. Where is the good news? We'll look at the end of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something that I've, I've been told by quite a number of people in this church over the years. I love it. I love this stuff. It makes, it makes what I do worthwhile. You know, sometimes I'm just working so hard to try and say things so people understand it. And I'm like, come on, God, you got to help me out here. Um, if you are surprised at your own mercy sometimes, be confident that Jesus Christ is at work in you. <laughs> the people are like, I, I wanted to kill him, and then I just felt compassion and mercy. I, I don't know what happened. And I'm like, I do. I do. Mercy is an evidence of grace. Yet the legitimate question on this verse is, whose mercy triumphs over judgment? Most people say God, and I'm, I will tell you, that is solid New Testament teaching. But the context of this text here is human relationships. So God says, when you show mercy... You have triumphed over judgment. Once again, there's a tension. And we talk about those tension, God's parts and our part. Mercy shows not only an evidence of grace, that's God's part, 
but it also shows our willful desire to obey. That's our part. This can and should give us the confidence in the 2 Corinthians 5 judgment. We should be confident of that day or make change, course changes in our lives right now. How is that possible? By understanding that God's mercy received will triumph over his judgment as well. So, if you're not a follower of Jesus, how do you get there? How do you, how do you get God's mercy? Well, just step one, grieve over your sin. Tell God, you know, you didn't give a lick about him. You didn't care. And ask for the forgiveness of sins, but make sure you ask with the intention to stop. Oh, you're going to need his help. But make sure you're asking with the intention to stop. And step two is to put your trust in Jesus. And then God's mercy will triumph over his judgment of you. Will you still fail? Yes, you will. You will. But as you try, as you're trying to obey God, your flesh is screaming to sin but you're trying so hard to obey God, you will experience the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you doubt this, remember, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus became your neighbor. And the cross and resurrection demonstrate his compassion and his mercy towards you, his neighbor. On the, on the cross, Jesus was judged for your sins. Why? So mercy could triumph over judgment for all who believe, for all who put their trust in Jesus. That's because on the cross, all the demands of God's justice for sin were met. That's God's part. Your part, my part, is to believe it, is to put our trust in Jesus. God saw our need, and he sent Jesus. May that bring peace to your heart, and may you find freedom in obeying God. And remember this, loved ones. When you, are, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are freed to obey but you will never, ever obey yourself into God's freedom. You only get that freedom by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.